Thanks so much, everybody, for the good singing and the good playing, and everyone stepped up today in a special way. Appreciate that. Hopefully you all have an insert uh, to kind of follow along, because there's so many passages that we're going to be touching on today. It'll be something if you want to follow up later, you can, you can look at or not. Um, it was the, uh, the summer of 1967, when I was only 16 years old, a young fellow, that uh, the Bible Chapel at, Cor at Congress Avenue in the city would have uh, Monday night baseball games every week. And all the people of the chapel were invited, older, younger, guys, gals. Didn't matter anybody who wanted to swing a bat or feel the ball. They could come out. And we had the best time. We had a great time. Uh, just a pickup game. It was fun. Not no big pressure. Nobody trying to show off. It was just for fun. And uh, this one particular night, I believe my brother Carl will remember it well because he's the one who hit the ball uh, at Genesee Valley Park all the way into the river. And it was a hot, blazing hot night. I remember that because myself and David Larder's brother, his older brother Donald. Uh, both jumped in the river more to cool off probably than to get the ball back. We didn't have any extra balls, I don't think, so we had to use that one. And uh, while we were in the water getting the ball, we decided, well, hey, this is nice. So we threw the ball out, and we just kind of splashed around for a few minutes. But there was a police boat, kitty, kitty corner across the river, where there was a little police boat station. Thank you, Duane. On behalf of all the speakers, I say thank you. You, 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 uh, you do a great service to those who come up here. Police boat came across and picked both Don and myself up, took us downtown in a paddy wagon, booked us, put us in, put a, yeah, it was funny, Kelly. <laughs> to Donald and I, it was funny. We were in the cells doing chin-ups and singing hymns, thinking we were Paul and Barnabas or Silas, something like that, you know. <laughs> However, the fun wore off when we got home finally. They took our belts away and our wallets and all. They didn't want us to hang ourselves. It, we were very thorough, fingerprinted us the whole bit. When I got home, however, it wasn't such a funny thing to my father. In fact, I'll never forget uh, his feeling of shame that I had, had somehow done something to flaunt the family name. And what it cost me was a slap in the face I'd never felt before in my life from my father. And the sting of that slap, to this day, I feel, I feel his displeasure I feel that I couldn't please him at that moment and many other times in my life. And it even carries down into some of my insecurities today about myself, my feelings of not being able to please others or please God or uh, that I'm going to fail, that I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do things the right way. Much had to do with that. But today, we're going to think about pleasing God because God can be pleased. And he tells us, this is how I can be pleased. You know, I've always wanted to preach this message, but I've always been afraid to because I feel like I don't do a very good job of it myself, and I'm still trying to learn what is it that really pleases him. But I find, I find an encouragement in the idea that I can please God through certain activities and acts and through certain work of his. So that's what I want us to look at a little bit this morning together and I trust the Lord will encourage you and bless you as a result of it. So, our subject, 
how do we please God? Let's go to the next slide. It makes sense that if the God of the Bible exists, it should be our highest goal to please him. And that's essentially what he says in uh, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. He talks about how we're always confident knowing while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. And I dare say for anybody who knows God, who knows his son, Jesus Christ, that is something that we have deep down inside us, a desire that we want to please him. Just like a child, like I wanted to please my dad. And you probably wanted to please your dad and your mom and other people in your life that were important people. Might be a spouse, might be a friend. We have this desire to want to please others. And this is probably, uh, and I would say undoubtedly, the most highest pot potential uh, goal in our lives. Our highest priority, if you will. And by the way, I see this slide, and it reminds me that my son, John, he edits these things for me so that you can actually enjoy them. <laughs> when I do them, they don't look so good. But I thank John for his work in putting all this together, the pictures and other things like that. So, all right, what's the next point? We can only please God if we believe that he exists and that he wants us to know him. This comes right out of uh, Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 11, in verse 6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I just want to take a moment on that word, diligently. It's a very interesting word. Uh, and it's really the word in the, in the original is to seek him out, exeteo. Uh, but it has the flavor of not just kind of like, Eh, well, I want to try to find my way over here, but it's like I want to study, I want to research. It's like some of you, when you get on your computers and you want to find out something that you need to know, whether it's buying a piece of clothing or some other article, and you do your research, you want to find a hotel that you're going to stay, you really go at it. You find out the best things that you can find out. And that's what's behind this word. It has to do with research and study and diligent devotion to it. When it's speaking of God, it's talking about following after him and seeking him through prayer and worship and these kinds of personal things. Uh, it's a very poignant word that's, uh, that's used here, that we want to uh, be a diligent uh, seeker after him. That's what can, can please him. But without that, it's impossible to please him. And I think this makes sense to us, doesn't it? If you, <laughs> if you don't want to please him, uh, and you, you don't have a desire to seek him, it's not going to please him. It, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I'm going the wrong direction. Okay, there we are. So in this verse, again, we see that he uh, is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Keep that in mind because we're going we're gonna to be cycling back to that. Again, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, what is faith? What is, what is it all about? In, in the first verse of chapter 11, it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I tried to break this down a little bit in the, the wording in the original. It, it uses the word 
hypostasis, which means literally to place or put under. So if you think of it in terms of like a foundation of a building, it's, it's a very important substructure, right? And that's what faith is. It's this, it's this substructure of what is being hoped for. It's what that hope rests upon. And it's the conviction of what is not being seen. So even in cases where it seems hopeless, it seems impossible, it seems like there's no reason to hope. And in there's cases when there's nothing that shows up in person to look like it's for real, there's still a conviction and there's a, a hope that faith comes along and, and assures us that this is right. Now, obviously, there's false faith. There are many people who believe in all kinds of things in this world that don't exist or that are skewed or uh, out of whack. So, obviously, it, it, you have to be a little bit careful in this, but makes it in this context, if you read it, you see the rest of the passage for by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Again, it takes faith to believe that, doesn't it? When you look out and you see all that you see, whether it's in the heavens or whether it's here on the earth, it takes faith to, to recognize this is by the hand of a God who thought it out, who created it, who designed it the way he did. It takes faith to believe that the Bible is his word. There's faith that's involved in every part of our life. And this isn't true just for Christians. This is true for everybody. Everybody exerts faith in, in whatever it is that they're resting their foundations on. Whatever worldview that they have, they're putting faith in that. And it may be a misplaced faith. Our faith has a lot to, to say for it in terms of actual proofs beyond our faith. We have a lot of reasons. We have a lot of rationality that supports our faith. It isn't just an irrational uh, kind of misled um, uh, disturbed faith, but there's, there's a basis for it. But today, it's hard. It's hard to believe sometimes. There are many that God is not pleased with who don't believe in him. They don't believe he exists. They don't believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In uh, Psalms 14, verse 1, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it goes on from there. There was a pastor who entered a tavern and there was a man there who wanted to embarrass him, who rose and suddenly called out quite loudly, Es gibt keinen Gott. There is no God in German. The pastor went to him, calmly laid his hand on his shoulder and said, Friend, what you have said is not at all new. The Bible said that more than 2,000 years ago. Why, the man said, I never knew the Bible made such a statement. The pastor informed him, Psalm 14, verse 1, tells us, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But there is a great difference between that fool and you. He was quite modest and said it only in his heart. He didn't go about yelling it out in taverns. <laughs> but today there are many who are not ashamed to make that declaration. Someday they will stand before this God that they're denying. And they will stand uh, and mostly kneel <laughs> in fear and trembling because they had an opportunity to know him and believe him and they refused it. But why is it hard for many today? How come we live in a culture and in a day when it's so difficult? Some, some months ago we talked about living in a countercultural uh, sense today as Christians. Our, our culture is not in the same stream, mainstream, that we, we used to be in. The culture has now taken over the mainstream, and we've been left behind in a sense. So some of these things are, are reviews for some of you. The God is dead theology. There's a rationalism in our in our 
philosophical thinking and existentialism, humanism, evolution, socialism, communism, moral relativism, secular education, social media, all these things are going on today and more. I'm sure you could think of many more. And what that does is it makes people growing up in our culture think it's just all about whatever they see, whatever they hear, wherever they are. There's nothing beyond this life. There's nothing beyond this world. And, uh, and that's why they don't believe that there is a God. And they're hearing it at school and in other places uh, with their friends. But look at the passage in Luke 18.8. A very interesting text. Jesus said these words. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? He was referring in that context to his coming the second time, that he was going to come back and establish his kingdom here on earth. And to me, the implication is, at that time, there's going to be very little faith in this world. There are going to be very few people who, like many of us here today, say, I believe in God. I believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There will be fewer and fewer, probably, as the days go on. So we shouldn't be surprised that this is the case. But again, it's obvious that God is not going to be pleased with those who don't believe in him. He can't be pleased with what some call the carnal unbelievers. The carnal unbelievers, as it says in Romans 6, talks about the, the mind, which is carnal means fleshly. Mind is enmity or, or uh, at war against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, who are those people? You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So if you're a believer, the spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, this isn't talking about you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So who is this clearly talking about? The person who doesn't believe in God, in Jesus Christ. They don't have the spirit of God in their life, which comes to any believer in Jesus Christ. So God can't be pleased with that person. And if you're here this morning and you're one of those people and in your heart, maybe you're like the fool of Psalm 14.1, you're just saying it in your heart, I don't believe in him. You can't please God with that attitude. Also, he's not pleased with the outwardly religious believer. David said in Psalm 51, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. This is his speaking to God. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So what does God delight in? He delights in a humble heart that has been humbled because it recognizes it's a sinner before a holy, righteous God. And it needs that God to forgive him of his sins or her sins. That is what pleases God. But those who are outwardly religious, who come perhaps week by week, and they sit in a pew, they listen to what's said, they sing what's sung, and they go home feeling happy and uh, that they're all set, that in and of itself is not going to please God. Does he want us to come? I believe he wants us to come and fellowship and worship and uh, learn about him. But if we're only doing that without that uh, heart of humility, recognizing what he did for us, it will not please him in and of itself. Well, disbelief, the Bible tells us in John 3, results in God's disfavor and ultimately his righteous judgment of our lives. It says very clearly here, for God did not send his son into the world, Lord Jesus, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here my challenge is to anyone 
hasn't yet come to a place where you do believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to pay for your sins. There is a condemnation and a judgment that awaits if you persist in that belief. But here's the good news. God doesn't want anybody to experience that. Now, some people think God is just looking to damn people. That's not the way the scriptures put it. It says in, in Ezekiel 33, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about he doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that's why he's not come back yet. <laughs> you know, he is coming back. He's going to set the record straight. Uh, all the evils will be corrected, and, and righteousness will reign. We wait for that time, but he's extending it, if you will, because he wants others to come to know him and to be delivered from their sins and to please him. Well, let's, let's switch gears to a more positive subject here, that God is pleased with those who believe in him and his plan for man. Just as he's not pleased with those who don't, those who do believe in him it says in Psalm 149:4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Apparently in the cellar in Cologne, Germany, after the war, there was a cellar that uh, was discovered through World War II. And these words were, were etched into the wall. It says, I believe. I believe in the sun, even when it is not shining. I believe in love, even when I feel it not. I believe in God, even when he is silent. I hope you can echo those words. This is what we're talking about, faith. Those men who saw what they saw during that time, horrible, awful things, could yet believe that in the midst of all of that chaos and all of that terrible, terrible pain and destruction, there is a God, and a God who loves. Well, true believers, as opposed to those who say there is no God, are in Christ, and they're already guaranteed God's total acceptance and positional pleasure. And this is good news for us. You know, if you're like me, and you're always trying to try to win God's favor and win God's pleasure guess what? It's already there in Christ. He tells us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1 that God shows us in him, in this positional relationship that we have as a believer, when we put our faith in Christ's death for our sins, we're placed in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world he chose us. Think about that. Before he even established this world, he already had chosen those of us who put our faith in him that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, now catch this, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted or ple pleasing to him in the beloved. That's what the Greek word means. He's made us already pleasing to him. In Jesus Christ, he sees us with the righteousness of Christ. When he said to Jesus after his baptism, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says that to you and I who have put our faith in Christ. It just blows me away. I'm just so grateful that I can have that pleasure in Christ. Not at all dependent on 
what I've done. It was the work of Christ that brought me to salvation. And it's the work of Christ that continues to perfect and to mature the believer after that. So this is a great truth, one to, one to hold on to and be, be really encouraged uh, by. And then there's another sense in which, in our condition, not just our positional place before God, but in our condition, God is pleased with those who, who walk with him. We can use those words, which is the process of sanctification, we call it in our fancy theology words. Sanctification means being set apart, being put apart for God's use, being made holy. And so we're told here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now that's referring basically to the word of God, which is telling us these things. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. How you ought to walk and to please God. We each have a walk. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a walk before us that we can walk that pleases him. It's not the same as our position. We're automatically guaranteed his pleasure. In this walk, we can make choices. We can think thoughts. We can do things that displease him, or we can do things, make choices. We can uh, uh, think things that are not pleasing to him. It, it becomes more of an optional thing, if you will. But we're exhorted here to walk uh, with God. And I want to read just a short section, I think I have time, from a book called uh, Walking with God by Philip Keller. It's in our library if you are interested in it. He says, the phrase walking with God is not just a picturesque piece of spiritual sentiment. It is not a mere bit of poetic rhetoric. It is not an empty expression of wishful thinking. Rather, it can be the powerful, pulsing principle that permeates all of life. It can be the central concept that directs and determines a devout life in company with Christ. It can be the daily delight of the man or woman who loves and knows God. It can be the sharing of our journey with his spirit. We can walk together with God. We can walk together with God. We can share life with him. We can be acutely aware of his presence on the path. We can know his intimate friendship. We can be guided by him in every area we enter. We can sense his gracious spirit by our side, speaking distinctly, emphatically saying to us, this is the way, walk in it. This is the life to which God calls human beings. He longs for our companionship. Down across the long centuries of human history, he has come and come and come, calling men and women to walk with him. Some have responded in lofty, noble lives that set them apart from, from and above their contemporaries. To name but a few, there was Enoch, my favorite hero of all heroes in the scriptures. We are told emphatically that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Then he was not, for God called him home to himself. So speaking of Enoch, that's our next, our next point. Okay. Enoch, we're told in Genesis chapter 5, walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, elaborates the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11 that by faith Enoch was translated so he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So Enoch is a, he's an example to us. He's an illustration of what is it like to walk with God. And I've always been kind of impressed with Enoch that, that he had this testimony that he pleased God. 
You know, there's some interesting things about Enoch. Um, see if I can get to them. Who, who was this person, this Enoch? Well, we know that he walked with God and pleased him. We just read that. In the New Testament, the, the apostle Jude, he quoted a prophecy that's attributed to Enoch in the book of Enoch about the coming flood judgment in Jude 14 and 15. He took it as, or at least the Lord inspired him to use that. So whether that was from Enoch or not, we don't know, but it was true. Enoch was born 622 years after the creation. Enoch was translated 69 years before Noah was born. You remember Noah was 500 years old when the flood came. All of Enoch's direct ancestors were still alive his entire life on earth. Adam, Seth, Enosh, all of those relatives. He was the seventh generation. All the others were still alive. We don't know how many of their offspring were still alive. We can only speculate. But all of them were still alive when Enoch was translated. Adam was his great, 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 great grandfather. Imagine that. If each of the seven generations from Adam had 10 children each, exponentially there could have been as many as 10 million people alive in Enoch's lifetime. And I always used to think of, well, there's only a few hundred people around, you know, by that point. But again, if you figure they were living 800, 900 years, and they were having children, a lot of them not until they were 100 years old, you know, they could have had a lot of children in there probably <laughs> if they could have them that old. But Noah had children at, uh, at 500 years old. <clears throat> so we don't know. It's just kind of speculative. But it's interesting to think of Enoch in that day, and yet he was set apart from all those people. All of his ancestors that are mentioned in Genesis, he's the only one that God said, you please me, I'm taking you home now because I want you to be with me. That says volumes to me that Enoch, had a set-apart kind of life. He didn't just fit in with the flow of everybody else, however many other millions of people potentially that were there at that time. He stood out from Adam, from Seth, from Enosh, from all these others in his generation that were alive at that time. He pleased God. There was something special in his walk with God. It's not until Noah in Genesis chapter 6 that we have another reference of he walked with God after the life of Enoch. So he was a special person. This is a funny little illustration that I came across I'll share with you. In a, in a sermon on Enoch walk with God, Dr. Campbell Morgan years ago gave the following illustration. A little child gave a most exquisite explanation of walking with God. She went home from Sunday school and the, and the mother said, tell me what you learned at school. She said, don't you know, mother, one day they went for an extra long walk and they walked on and on until God said to Enoch, you are a long way from home. You had better just come in and stay. And he went. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> you can just see a young girl doing that. Um, but there is something about Enoch that should challenge us. What does this look like? You know, and as I think about walking with God, I think about here our illustrations in life. We walk with other people, whether it's a spouse or a friend a co-worker, we, we, uh, we constantly are walking with other people around. What are we doing when we're walking with them? Very often, aren't we talking, discussing, like the two men on the road to Emmaus? We're, we're discussing things that are going on in our lives or things that we need to know about that person or something else that's, that's happening. And isn't this the way we walk with God? We're in conversation. We, we listen to his word as he teaches us and he 
talk to us. We pray, we, we express to him our needs and our concerns and our thanks and all these things. And we grow closer and closer to him as we walk with him. I always think of my wife when I think of this because she loves to walk. And she loves to go out like to the nature trail or somewhere like that, whether it's snowy or she doesn't mind. In fact, she loves it if it's snowing. It's all the more romantic for her. And we'll just hike out there in the snow and walk. And we'll talk usually as we're walking. And we're just amazed at you know, how, how wonderful it is to just be together, to have that time together. It's, it's a great thing. All right, let's move on. Uh, so as an illustration to, to the walk, in, in the epistle of uh, the Ephesians, the chapters 4 through 6, it constantly refers to walking, 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 walking. And time won't permit us to, to do anything but go through this quickly. But again, I commend it to your study when you get home. But uh, take a look at all of these. Even, even early in the, chap in, in the letter, in Ephesians 2.10, it talks about we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before, and that we should walk in them. There's something that God is, is doing uh, with us during this walk. Okay, so some of this wa walk is talks about walking worthy, walking worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's a challenge for us all. We can all consider that, how important this is to God. This pleases Him. <laughs> when we do this, when we walk together in unity, we have a lot of differences right here in this room. You know, if we all sat down and we shared all of our different positions and views on everything and our experiences, we would have just a whole wide variety of things going on. Yet we're all one in Christ, those of us who believe in Jesus. And we have this admonition to, to be unified and to walk together in the spirit of God. And that's, of course, the key is the, is the spirit of God. Um, yeah, I have a great quote from Chafer. I'm not going to read, but he has a book called He That Is Spiritual. And he has a section on walking in the spirit. And basically, he puts forth the idea that this is done in the power of the spirit. This walk. This isn't, this isn't you and I nitty-gritting it out, saying, all right, I'm going to walk for God today, and I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to do this and that and that for God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, equipping us, guiding us, instructing us, giving us insights, and then launching us to do what he wants and giving us all that we need to do it. So, again, we get no other, none of the glory for it, but it's, it's, uh, it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a key element in all this. We're also admonished not to walk like the unbelievers walk. Um, this calls it in the futility of their mind. Futility means emptiness or vanity um, without a fuller depth and understanding of things. The, the, the unbeliever, the Bible says, is in darkness, and they're walking about in darkness. They have no light. They have no understanding of the things of God. We're not to walk about like that. Those of us who are believers, we know who God is. We know to some extent, who we are. And we know what he wants of us and delights to do in us. So uh, we, can, we can walk in such a way that's not like this. Um, and a very interesting sub-point, and I'll have to catch this quick, but I had a former professor uh, with a, a course I was taking in, in counseling that uh, his whole perspective is called Christian Formation Counseling. And he basically takes it out of these two verses. And what he sees in there is four of the major ways that we resist the work of the Holy Spirit when we, when we have these kind of attitudes and behaviors, either through self-effacing and putting ourselves down or others down, through blame-shifting where we're always putting the blame on somebody else, 
through denial or through pleasure-seeking. And he see, he's developed from that this whole concept, and it, and it fits in with the, the diagnostic statistical manual that psychiatrists and psychologists use today, uh, these different behaviors. But he identifies them as these are ways we are resisting the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And, uh, and, and we do. I mean, I see it in myself. I see it in others. I, it's, it's just there. We, we naturally can default to these things, which is the way that the unbelievers, uh, it's their normal type of, of living. We don't have to live that way. And we're called to walk a different way. We're to walk in love. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ being the greatest example of love that there is. And we're also uh, to walk as children of the light. And here it talks about the fruit of the Spirit being goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. And the word again for acceptable there is pleasing. What is pleasing to God? When we walk as children of the light, we're pleasing God. When we're walking as children of the darkness, we're not really pleasing him very well. Not happy about that in our, in our condition. We're also to walk in wisdom. We're told in uh, Ephesians 5 uh, that we're to walk circumspectly, um, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I'm sure through a lot of this, you're noticing the will of the Lord, the will of God is coming up. And that is obviously a theme in pleasing God, is doing what he wants. Uh, Ephesians 5, 18 to 6, 9, the rest of the, the epistle, it all deals with walking with God while we're filled with the Holy Spirit, how it affects our relationships with others. And that pleases God if we're doing what he's saying, whether it's husbands and wives, parents and children, whether it's employers and employees, things like that. We have these instructions as to how we can please God when we're filled with his spirit who's empowering us and walking with him. Even those who remain single, I shouldn't say even, but those who do remain single can more singularly please God, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 7. Why? Because they don't have a spouse that they have to please. So they have more opportunity. Now, not everybody is meant to live that way. And uh, at that time, there was a certain time in 1 Corinthians 7 that was very difficult, times of distress, and, uh, and it appeared to be better to not be married. But those of you who are not married, take heart. You can please God better as a, as a single person than those who are married. Now, that's not to say <coughs> our marriages can't please God. They can. We're given instruction how to do that in Ephesians 5. Now, moving on, those uh, besides our walk, what else is pleasing to God? He's pleased with those who regularly offer their bodies and minds to do his will. Most of you here are familiar with Romans 12, so I'm not going to go into it, other than to just point out that the passage talks about being acceptable to God. Again, that's being pleasing, that God is pleased with us, and that what he wants is us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Acceptable, that which pleases him, that perfect will of God. And that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice. So our bodies and our minds being given regularly. Not This is not a one-time consecration. A lot of people say, oh, you know, we just have to, you have to do Romans 12 and everything will be fine the rest of your life. This is something we have to constantly focus on. Just like every day is new, every day we need to be focused on, Lord, I want to give you uh, myself and uh, for, for your glory. Okay, just quickly through the others. God is pleased with those who sacrificial be, sacrificially do good and share. Uh, that's found in Hebrews 13. 
And those, those are things that are sacrifices that God says are well-pleasing to him. Uh, when we sacrifice of our own goods or our own time, our own things for other people, God is happy about that. He's pleased that we're not just being focused on our own lives. God is pleased with those who want him to empower them to do his will. We touched on this earlier uh, in Hebrews 13, at the very end of the letter pretty much. He speaks of this and how important it is for that power uh, to be a part of our pleasing him, that we experience his power and his work in our lives. Two more quick points on this. God is pleased with those who tell others the good news. We have a couple passages that speak of that and make it very clear that this is something that pleases God when we do that. And the other thing is that he's pleased with those who fear him and hope in his mercy. And this one from Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. And that's exactly what he says there. All right, I just want to close with one final, one final aspect of things. How, how not to please God? <laughs> you know, we've seen some ways that God is definitely pleased. He tells us he's pleased when we, when we do these things in this process of sanctification. But here's some things that, that the scriptures clearly tell us. This doesn't please him. And we can do this as Christians. We can oppose his people. We can reject his discipline. We can fail to believe his promises that he gives us. So these are areas where God tells us, I'm not happy about that. That doesn't bring pleasure to me. All right. We have used enough time except to close with Colossians chapter 1. And the reason I picked this is because it so connects the idea of pleasing God and walking with him. So I just want to read in Colossians 1, Paul's prayer for the Colossians and for you and I all these generations later. He said, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Father, I just want to thank you that you have provided so much for us besides the salvation of our souls because you are and because your Son has come and given his life for us. But you've also provided for us means for us to be able to please you. First of all, that we already have your acceptance in Christ, but then in our daily lives, you can also um, be, be pleased with the decisions that we make and the things that we do and think. So I pray today that for each of us here, we might take some of these ideas, Lord, and we would turn them over and commit them to you and ask you each day, Lord, how can I please you best? What is your will today? How can I walk with you closer than I walked yesterday? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.